Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. At art museums, oftentimes, what we know about our guests stops at the ticket counter. That was Robert Stein, Deputy Director and Chief Experience Officer for the Milwaukee Art Museum, overseeing collections, conservation, design, IT, and marketing. He started this month, fresh from serving as Senior Vice President Guest Experiences and Communications at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago, and before that, Executive Vice President and Chief Program Officer for the American Alliance of Museums, Deputy Director of the Dallas Museum of Art, and previously Deputy Director for Research, Technology, and Engagement at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Rob, welcome to Artscoping. Thanks, Max. Glad to be here. And where is here? You're in Chicago now, right? Yeah, in these COVID times, I am in Chicago, close to the lake, and sunny morning, 15 degrees. <laughs> Lovely. Same here in New York, 15 degrees. But you're actually working in Milwaukee, so you're a shapeshifter. I am, yeah. I started a new position at the Milwaukee Art Museum at the beginning of January and have been starting a new job remotely, which is not something I really ever thought I would do, but it's been a grand amount of fun. As I mentioned at the outset, you've moved from the Shedd Aquarium to the Milwaukee Art Museum. What tempted you back into the art museum fold? Art museums are something that I really came to love, as you know, in the early 2000s. Not trained as an art historian, but as a computer scientist, really. You know, thinking about the new directions for myself, art museums are definitely a place where I've felt connected. The other factor is just getting to know Marcel Poletnik, the director at the Milwaukee Art Museum. She and mm -hmm. I really hit it off and working together closely with a great leader and thinker is something that I've always loved to do and have appreciated that about our work together too. It's great to have that chemistry with a colleague and to see possibilities ahead. Unlike some other kinds of museums, which can get their point across even remotely, the idea with an art museum is to get people in front of collections and exhibitions. So what are art museums doing these days to keep artworks top of mind other than just tweeting out images and sharing them on Instagram? It's a good question, uh, Max. As you remember, it, it wasn't quite so long ago that we were having debates about whether art museums should put their collections online at all <laughs> and whether anyone would come to the museum if we did so. Um, and, <laughs> And yet today, here we sit, and the only way to experience art in many museums is virtually, thanks to the pandemic. It is a bit of a strange time, but I think we've seen an increasing amount of innovation coming from museums really around the world for how to engage with audiences when all we can be is remote through a Zoom screen. There are a, a number of really interesting projects and attempts at this from live and virtual programming via Zoom, which I think we've all participated in. Lectures and conversations can still move forward well to more innovative, immersive 360 tours and even a number of museums venturing into the video game realm of uh, things like Animal Crossing and establishing virtual <laughs> art museums on your Nintendo Switch. The Milwaukee Art Museum has done some really great work, I think, on immersive 360 tours of its collection areas and exhibitions using uh, 
what may be a familiar tool to real estate agents or home shoppers. It's that same technology that allows you to explore a, a new home or apartment, but this time turned loose on art galleries, which I think is really effective. And it raises a larger question around how institutions are fulfilling their mission, because back in the day of January of last year, museums were, as you and I have long discussed, obsessed with attendance and with blockbuster shows and with number of members. And those have largely vanished. So has that, like a receding tide, revealed something about the true purpose of museums that we should all be thinking about these days? It's a hard question to answer. I think uh, in reality, to be honest, museums do still care about attendance and exhibitions. And that's what makes museums so interesting is that they have many different agendas. Certainly having no visitors in the gallery is not a circumstance that any of us would desire or choose for ourselves, but it does make us think about what engaging with art in a real and authentic way looks like when you can't really count footsteps through the door anymore. I think we're seeing more genuine and thoughtful conversations. The virtual realm does give us the opportunity to unpack the details of a single work in a different way than we would in the gallery. Of course, we know from lots of studies in the gallery that the average gallery visitor to an art museum spends about 30 seconds or less with each individual artwork. Online, you can supercharge that 30 seconds with lots yeah. of information and you have a little more narrative control over what that storyline is and sounds like. And in fact, you can probably even stretch that uh, a bit longer. Mm -hmm. So it does have some advantages, but it is certainly a new world. You once got a grant to install a bar over a painting and examine how the eyeball of the visitor was looking over the picture. Can you talk about that for a minute, what that taught us or didn't teach us? Yeah, it's a fun grant. Uh, thank you to the IMLS for that support. It was um, the early days of eye tracking and gaze detection when these tools were mostly used by advertising agencies to track which parts of a store ad or poster your eyes were most attracted to. We were really interested in learning whether art history scholars processed a new work of art visually in a different way or a different order than those of us who are less skilled at looking at art or whether children process a work of art visually in a different way or order than adults might. I still think it's a really interesting idea that very few people have pursued. We were, of course, trying to do this under gallery conditions. And no surprise, gallery conditions aren't great for computer cameras. So it was a little difficult at the time, but it would certainly be worth taking a look at again. Well, it raises the topic. You say 30 seconds is the average amount of time in front of a work of art, which is hardly the amount of time you tuck into a great novel. And so exactly. the idea of beginning to understand a little bit about the neural networks, how they fire, what's happening in the brain and in the heart as you're looking at a work of art. We know so little about that, as you point out, just as we know so little about our audiences. I'm interested because that raises the question, why should museums be pursuing individual studies 
and finding individual results instead of collaborating. Why is it so hard, in other words, to get museums to move past polishing their institutional websites and undertaking real, substantial, and ongoing collaboration? I guess I would argue a little bit with that point, and that I don't think it's all that difficult to get museums to play around and collaborate together. I do agree that that's less common than it should be. One of the great advantages of art museums in the United States is that as nonprofits, uh, we don't have a terribly competitive business atmosphere against each other. The Cleveland Museum of Art and the Art Institute of Chicago and the Milwaukee Art Museum, even though we're all situated on the Great Lakes, having a person visit the Art Institute of Chicago doesn't hurt the Milwaukee Art Museum or the Cleveland Museum of Art. In fact, mm -hmm. it may have been help us because we know we get a lot of drive-in tourists who are addicted to seeing art in great museum collections. So those collaborations can and should happen a lot more frequently than they do. Max, honestly, I think museums are working in a scarcity model, both of funding and staffing, that has teams inside the museum working on many different kinds of projects that any other business would find ridiculous. Um, but museums are, in fact, many businesses all rolled into one. Yeah, and the patrons of museums span the spectrum just as much as the businesses undertaken within them. What kinds of expectations do born digital museum patrons have that are different from past generations of visitors? We're quickly seeing that uh, almost everybody is becoming born digital in, in <laughs> just a matter of time. <laughs> uh, I do think that audiences today have different expectations than they used to about how they can remain digitally connected to their life outside of those gallery walls. It used to be that when you went to visit a, a museum gallery or collection, that was a time to take a step outside of your normal life and instead mm -hmm. immerse yourself in great art. I would argue that is still true, but I think there's an expectation that we're constantly in touch and plugged in. I know I feel that. And I think a number of our audiences uh, would feel uncomfortable if they didn't have access to that connection and community that they find online. Uh, that's definitely a change. Yeah, it wasn't so long ago that you weren't allowed to use a phone in a museum. <laughs> right. Now that would be fatal. <laughs> and we've sort of passed the era of the, the debates on whether selfies in a museum collection are allowed or even desired. Maybe the debate is still out, but what we do know is that people use their phones and their social networks as a means of expressing their identity to their followers. And followers might be those folks that are very close to them or might be a different kind of follower that is a bit more expansive. But nonetheless, the social media channels are used as a place for visitors to align their identity with museums and with art. And why wouldn't we want that? And while there are fuddy-duddies who would say selfies represent an abnegation of looking, they're simply about self-absorption, I think that's romanticizing what people did before in art museums. There's no guarantee that in those 30 seconds they had a more profound experience than someone who 
inserts themselves into a, an image with a picture. Mm -hmm. I agree. Rob, earlier this week, the Knight Foundation released a report titled Digital Transformation, an Assessment of Grants Supporting Digital Staff in Museums. Have you seen this report? Have you had a chance to glance at it or read it? And if so, what do you think of it? I did see it, Max. Thank you. You know, I just want to highlight for your listeners that the Knight Foundation has been among the vanguard of foundations who are really investing in digital technology for the purposes of audience engagement. And they've done this over a number of years. So this report in particular is looking at the impact of a program that the Knight Foundation has supported to add digital experience staff to eight different museums around the country. And in fact, their findings are that adding specific staff in that area of digital experience does have significant impacts and results, allowing the museum to engage far more audiences and that the capacity for digital change is far increased. But especially during the pandemic, we've all leaned on what meager technology staff that we had at our disposal to really take on a grand new challenge of being the only means that visitors could engage with art. So, you know, I'm really encouraged by the study. Uh, of course, I think I'm a, a little biased. It reconfirms what I've thought is that mm -hmm. having digital creatives as a part of an organization really gives the museum a lot of flexibility to adapt and to meet user needs in a landscape that changes sometimes every three to six months. That's really different than the planning timeline for an exhibition or publication, for instance. And in the old days of print media, there were a handful of museums around the country that were in major media markets who got a lot of coverage, and they were the ones everybody talked about. But today, the landscape's been flattened in a sense because of digital innovation. Is that fair to say? It's definitely been flattened in terms that every museum has the ability to create and publish content of some form. You know, it still takes expertise and money and frankly, strategy and commitment to really make a profound difference. I do still think there's an advantage to those museums whose brand is really strongly present and reinforced online, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with geographic placement or budget size, for instance. Well, speaking of that, some years ago, you pioneered a really interesting program, which was to offer consulting services when you were deputy director at the Indianapolis Museum of Art to other museums for their digital needs. Can you reflect on that experience and how relevant it is for museums going forward? Yes, thank you. So we did, we founded the IMA lab in Indianapolis in the mid 2000s, mid to late 2000s. And it was based on an observation that at that time, there was some scarcity of digital talent around the museum sector. Because of uh, your support and frankly, the support of uh, foundations who allowed us to experiment and expand the presence of the Indianapolis Museum of Art Online, we grew a team that was really skilled in this area. One of my observations at that time was that, again, and still true, the business of museums is very different than any other kind of commercial business that's out there. We may want to think that we're like a 
entertainment venue or a book publisher or a university, but in fact, we're a little bit different than all of those things. And especially when it comes to engaging with collections online, there's a really unique set of skills and knowledge that you need to bring to bear in order to be successful. So in Indianapolis, having a staff of technologists who are also embedded in a museum for their daily bread and butter meant that we were more able to understand the challenges and what success looked like for other art museums and then grow past our capacity needed at the Indianapolis Museum alone and in fact provide that expertise as services to other museums around the country. Yeah, and you mentioned an old hobby horse of mine, measuring success. What do you think we really need to be paying attention to when evaluating end-user participation in, in digital products? Is it impressions? Is it unique users? Or are there other metrics that you think about? I'll take your hobby horse and Max, I'll add one of my own or I'll get up on my soapbox a little bit and say that I think the thing that comes before the metrics are that museums need to really choose and set specific goals. Often what I find is that this obsession, as you've pointed out, with attendance is in complete absence of what the goal is or should be. And in fact, without a goal, we don't know whether we're succeeding or not is more attendance better? Is fewer attendees with a longer time of engagement better? We can't know that unless we've been more specific about the goals that we're setting. Goal setting over time really provides a basis for choosing which metrics are important. And those will be different whether we're talking about the museum's operations concerning education visitors or our general audience and their engagement in a gallery or our online audiences and perhaps their connection and engagement to online tours. We have a lot of ability today to monitor every single nuance of data streaming off of your laptop to our museum. But which ones of those data are the most important for achieving our goals is really the hardest question. And also who's measuring, because we're accustomed to having different sets of expectations. There's a board of trustees who typically look at things that are more easily measured, attendance, revenue per visitor, cost per square foot, things that are in effect ratio analysis. Mm -hmm. Then you have a director who's trying to keep everything going at once. And then you have individual departments with individual concerns. So that measuring is especially complicated mm -hmm. when you're not all working from the same song sheet, right? I agree. I also think that it's easy to get hung up on the numbers and the statistics. And if you graph them, all lines go up, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, really knowing what that little chart is telling you is sometimes really difficult. So I've always been a proponent of coupling those quantitative statistics with qualitative statistics. Because as mission-directed organizations, ultimately our goal is to see an enrichment of our communities and particularly an enrichment that's anchored in an appreciation and an enjoyment of great works of art. That is not something I'm going to be able to place a thermometer on and tell you when it happens. So it is something, though, that is rather easy to tell in an interview setting, talking with folks. So pairing that quantitative and qualitative research agenda, really, for the museum can help you model or understand what the squiggly pattern of lines <laughs> means on your screen. 
Yeah, but you pioneered two extraordinary adventures. One was a dashboard at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Can you talk about what that was for and what it told us? Yes. So in 2007, at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, we did publish a dashboard of statistics of our own internal measures and metrics across every area of the museum's operations. I think in the belief that sunshine is the best disinfectant and shining a light onto the performance of our museum's operations, sort of unequivocally without making judgment statements about how we're doing, was a great way to build confidence, not only among the staff, but among our public for how the museum was stewarding its many assets, whether that is the art collection, our financial assets, the land, our audience assets, all of those things are up for some debate as to what the right goals are or should be. I, for one, believe that debate is something we should be having with the public on a regular basis. But too often, it's far too hard to decipher what's actually going on inside of any organization. Simply turning that data loose has a clarifying effect of its own. I do think it is also tremendously helpful from the perspective of the staff of any level to be able to remain in touch and top of mind with how the organization is doing, not relying on an all-staff meeting or a one-on-one with your supervisor to really understand the performance metrics of the organization. Or the propaganda of an annual report, which is always... Didn't we do great? Aren't we fantastic? (laughs) And that was part of the excitement. (laughs) Annual reports have a really particular audience. (laughs) (laughs) But with the dashboard, we were able to measure such things as percentage of staff of color managing other people and things that were really cutting at the time to the quick, asking questions that really demanded a public awareness, the percentage of income to budget in fundraising, the relative humidity and temperature in the special exhibition galleries. Amazingly candid, no? It was. And and I think, too, as art museums existing within a, a landscape and a community, we have a responsibility for good stewardship. So, you know, not necessarily about the art collection, but I remember we were at that time in 2006 and seven monitoring the energy consumption of the museum to sustain its operations and maintaining that temperature and humidity in the galleries is not only quite expensive, but it is quite energy intensive. So being able to hold museums of all sorts to account for their stewardship of consumption, I think is really important and is something that we just started to scratch the surface of in Indianapolis all those years ago. And then in Dallas, you built this loyalty program called DMA Friends, which was and remains a revolutionary idea that not just understanding how the museum's performing, but who's coming and what do they want and how are they spending their time? Can you talk a bit about DMA Friends? Yes, uh, DMA Friends was really based on the recognition that if if we were an Amazon.com or, or, or even your local t-shirt company, we would know an awful lot about the behaviors of our customers. And yet at art museums, oftentimes 
what we know about our guests stops at the ticket counter. Once they come in and purchase their ticket or enter the gallery, our, our visibility for what those guests are doing, what they're thinking, what they're enjoying or not, oftentimes ends or is relegated to occasional intercept surveys in those galleries. The DMA Friends program decided to try to flip that on its head and also to offer a way to share with guests, many of whom were coming for the first time, the various ways that you can use an art museum that we've already programmed and set up, but that many, especially new visitors, aren't aware of. So the DMA Friends program simply published almost a restaurant-style menu of the different kinds of activities and uses of the museum that were available to you on any day. We chose, instead of a, a glossy app that requires a smartphone and a data subscription, to instead just use text messaging and simple signage in the galleries that displayed a short alphanumeric code. And then when guests were in a gallery or participating in a program or having a cup of coffee and a cookie in our cafe, they could simply tell us about that experience by texting us a three-letter code. Doing so would then help them accumulate points, much like a frequent flyer program, that over time could accrue and that those guests could then use for more exclusive experiences that they could essentially pay for with their points that were back and connected to the art museum and the art collections. So for instance, a tour through the collection storage of the museum, something that costs the museum relatively little, but is in fact a really unique experience that only a very few privileged people have the chance to participate in. So it was a tremendous success. We learned a lot. We learned a lot about our audiences. The program grew to about 150,000 members in just 18 months. And at its peak, we were seeing about 15 to 20% of all guests participating with the Friends program during their visit. That gave us a really interesting window into which galleries were maybe not as seen as they should be and allowed us to promote those in new ways and which audiences were plugging in and participating, which helped us target and hone our marketing efforts to really grow and advance new audiences for the museum. That new audience growth really did make a difference with attendance growing by 50% between that 2014 and 2016 time period. And the museum has done a great job in preserving that growth. They are still at those attendance levels. And I believe the Dallas Museum of Art broke new attendance records just prior to the pandemic. I think the other interesting part about it was in Deep Red, Texas, where taxes are thought to be questionable. The city council gave us a six-figure increase because we were able to show who was visiting us from different council districts. And there were a lot of other benefits. But Rob, that's already a decade ago that some of these innovations were launched, the dashboard, the DMA Friends. What are some of the next frontiers at museums, both Milwaukee and elsewhere, that you're interested in? There's a lot of attention being focused today on virtual experiences, certainly immersive virtual reality and augmented reality. That, as you know, Max, has been a part of my academic background, but I've never been a huge fan of those technologies in the context of an art museum. I 
do think, however, that technology can add immersive or visceral components to an art gallery visit that does not involve placing your eyes behind a screen. So I'm really intrigued by the ways that technology can support in-person viewing of art in the gallery. I think there are a lot of opportunities for multivalent experiences that unwind using more of your senses in addition to your eyes when you're viewing works of art. I think technology is particularly interesting there because in an art gallery setting, many people are sharing the same space at the same time, and almost every one of them will have an individual preference that's different than the other. So technology really allows us to unwind that and yet create a visceral, convincing, memory-creating encounter uh, with an artwork or an artist. So that's certainly an area that I'm really interested in. There are still an awful long way to go in the kinds of stories we can tell that cross-connect collections of works of art between the great museums here in the United States and indeed around the globe. I think the last decade has shown us that many of those museums are putting all of their collections online and opening the majority of those collections under open access licenses. What we've not really seen to date is companies or museums who have been successful in essentially crossing those streams and telling stories about art that transcend those geographic boundaries and the four walls of the gallery experience. So I really think we will see that in the coming years. That's exciting to look forward to. Rob, I have one last question, which is asking you for a prediction because you are a savant. <laughs> the world we live in is now zoomified to excess and people are accustomed to their Hollywood Squares meetings. Do you, as a person who has hosted, staged, organized, attended countless conferences, do you think that non-virtual things like conferences are going to be as prevalent after the pandemic recedes? I do. I 100% believe that in-person conferences and meetings and lectures and gallery presentations are coming back. I think the saying is true that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And we all dearly miss the presence of other people. And while, as you say, our Hollywood Square Zoom meetings are sufficient to get work done, they are not fully satisfying. And in fact, they miss much of the experience of being together that is so important in museums and in museum conferences. Now, I do think that the virtual and remote connection and participation to those conferences will also remain. And I hope that it broadens the accessibility of those meetings to people from around the world who either cannot travel for one reason or another or cannot afford to attend in person. So I do hope that that continues, but I wholeheartedly believe that in-person meetings and experiences are coming back strong as soon as we're able to do so safely. Well, that is an optimistic note, and I would say to our younger listeners, my apologies for the reference to Hollywood Squares. You have to Google that. It was an old TV show. <laughs> but Rob, thank you so much for joining Artscoping today and lending some of your wisdom to the audience. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Max. It was fun to talk to you. We've been speaking today with Rob Stein, 
Deputy Director and Chief Experience Officer for the Milwaukee Art Museum. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.